This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from It's Okay to Be Smart, The Young Turks, Counterspin, TED Talks, On the Media, and The Green News Report. Let's not beat around the rapidly melting iceberg here. Climate change is happening, and we are causing it. The evidence is overwhelming. Scientists usually reserve this level of agreement for claims like Earth is a planet or air is real. Yet here we are. The climate change ship has now left the dock, yet lots of people on shore are still debating whether boats can actually float. But maybe you're a person who trusts and accepts what climate scientists are telling us. It's just sometimes it's hard to explain why. I mean, we've all been there. I mean, I care about the environment. I figure with the polar bears and everything, we might as well try electric cars. What do we have to lose? And then they go caps lock serious, saying they have proof that climate change is a hoax perpetuated by scientists paid off by the polar bear lobby as part of a plan to install Al Gore as Supreme World Polar Bear Emperor. Wake up, sheeple! To keep that from happening, we put together this handy reference. The sun is the source of warmth on Earth, so thanks for that, sun. Ice and clouds reflect some of its light away, but the rest is absorbed by land and water and re-emitted as heat. Some of that heat escapes to space, and some is held in by the atmospheric greenhouse effect. The insulating effect of Earth's greenhouse gases are the reason that life exists as we know it, but human activities have increased the concentration of one of them, carbon dioxide, 40% since the Industrial Revolution. We know the sun's output has varied during history, but since the 1970s, the period when global temperatures increased the fastest, temperature and solar activity have moved in opposite directions. If the sun was to blame, it would cook the upper and lower layers of the atmosphere together. Instead, we only see warming in the lower layers, the same place that human greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide are piling up. Since 1870, with fossil fuels, cement production, and land use combined, humans have put about 2,000 gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere. That's 2 million million tons, and about 40% has stayed there. Studying gases trapped in ice cores has let us see what Earth's atmosphere was like in the past. At more than 400 parts per million, today's carbon dioxide levels are the highest they've been for almost a million years. That's before humans even existed. Totally uncharted territory for us. More carbon dioxide in the atmosphere means average temperatures across the globe are increasing, and fast. Right now, Earth is warming about 10 times faster than at the end of an ice age. Okay, so CO2 is increasing. How do we know it's our fault? The best evidence comes from looking at what isotopes, or different kinds of carbon, are in the atmosphere. Fossil fuels come mainly from old plants. Plants prefer to use the lighter isotope carbon-12 over the heavier carbon-13, so they contain a higher ratio of 12 to 13 than the atmosphere does. When more fossil fuels get burned, the percentage of carbon-12 in the atmosphere should go up, and that's exactly what we see. And it's not because of volcanic activity. Volcanoes only emit about 1% as much CO2 as we do. Normally that CO2 is balanced in exchange between the atmosphere, plants, and animals. But eliminating carbon sinks has released centuries worth in just a few years. Other greenhouse gases are also increasing, like methane from farm animals and natural gas processing, or nitrous oxide from fertilizers. If we run simulations just using natural causes of climate change, they predict no change or even cooling in the 20th century. And that is not what's happening. It's still going to get cold in some places, but in the 2000s, there were twice as many record highs as record lows. 
and each of the past three decades has been warmer than any other decade since we started measuring in 1850. Since 1900, actual temperatures around the world have increased almost a full degree, and most of that has happened since the 1970s. Looking at data from tree rings and ice cores, the past 30 years is probably the warmest in eight centuries. Of course, not every place on Earth warms equally. Oceans cover more than 70% of Earth, and they absorb more than 90% of the heat added to the planet. Naturally, that's where we see the most extreme changes. Around the world, oceans are rising a tenth of an inch per year, and they're up eight inches since 1901. This is because water expands as it warms. And when ice sheets and glaciers melt in Greenland and Antarctica, water that's normally on frozen land gets put in the ocean. The oceans are Earth's largest carbon sink. As more CO2 enters the atmosphere, more of it dissolves in the ocean, which makes the water more acidic. This doesn't mean the oceans will be made of acid, but animals with calcium shells are super sensitive to pH. We're on course for the oceans to hit pH 7.8 in 100 years, which could wipe out one-third of species in the ocean. We also know that levels of summer sea ice in the Arctic have decreased 40% since 1978. They might be the lowest levels in 1,400 years. That white sea ice usually reflects the sun's energy back into the atmosphere, but the dark ocean is soaking it up like a black shirt on a sunny day, which feeds the cycle forward. If CO2 emissions continue on their current trends, Earth is on course to be two and a half to five degrees warmer. The oceans could be up to a meter higher by the end of this century. Is that a big deal? Yeah. It's the biggest deal. This is by far the greatest issue facing our species. The last time the Earth averaged a few degrees colder, most of North America was covered in a mile-thick sheet of ice. That many degrees warmer? We're going to have a bad time. So now you're armed with the facts, why we know climate change is happening, and why we're causing it. Please, share this information with the people you know, and then let me know. Did it change any minds? Did it change your mind? I mean, are facts enough? If not, then why do so many people continue to not believe in climate science? We'll answer that question in our next video. Stay curious. So one of the most renowned uh, climate change deniers is a scientist by the name of Wei Huck Soon. Uh, his name is Willie. He's commonly known as Willie. That's what people call him. There he is. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you about not-so-free Willie in a second, Okay, because apparently there's some funding issues that he has. But before we do that, I want to show you a video of conservatives with their idea about how... 97% of the world's scientists are in on a conspiracy where they're getting paid off by the government and their universities. So they say the scientists are influenced by money. Okay, now watch. I think the whole global warming industry is full of groupers. I think there's so much of American government that is full of groupers. These allegedly objective consultants who are actually sort of rent-seeking remoras, sucking on the side of the Leviathan and making money off of this stuff. <laughs> 
Tonight, we will expose some glaring errors in this so-called science and show you how scientists, politicians, and big business have turned global warming hysteria into a multi-billion dollar industry. Wow. Mm -hmm. It takes a rocket scientist, I guess. Mm -hmm. And to believe in global warming, all it takes is a corrupt rocket scientist. That's all you need. You can, you can still hold that the climate changers are true believers, but that doesn't mean they aren't deeply invested in the whole industry of global warming. How are scientists corrupted in this process? In other words, that they would manufacture, distort the data to advance their agenda. How did that happen? Why were they willing accomplices here? Yes, so right. you don't believe in the scientists, the 98% of the climatologists. Oh, you mean the that, corrupt that, ones? You mean the, the corrupt 90, ones who admit they, that, they screwed up, their, their, they skewed I, their findings? I, it's, it's a natural human tendency to, as, as, as you business guys say, talk your book. Because the record, the temperature record of the Earth is clearly rigged. So you get Phil Jones at the CRU in the UK. I mean, he's pulled in $19 million for his organization in research grants. The temperature's got to be warming, Sean, otherwise he's not going to get the grants. GE lobbied passionately for climate change legislation and cap and trade, in part because they don't build oil wells, they build, they build wind turbines. Exactly and they were going to make right. a lot of money off of it. Let's say that some loony tune wanted to postulate that the earth is flat today some looney turn looney tune that uh, you know some 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 wacko from the 60s so let's say he went out and paid a bunch of scientists and he had a pool of 100 scientists and he found 55 of them to agree consensus of scientists says the earth is flat but of course now all the consensus in the world you want but it isn't true 98 how do they make the their world? living climatologist telling oh, everyone that their, their industry has to be addressed what about 9136 scientists no i don't I, I don't I, listen listen every time every time i hear about the scientists when i get deep down into who they are what their agenda is you know you often trace it back to the same people talking to each other and advancing a similar goal you look at the money that james hansen from nasa who's in charge of the temperature over here gets this guy has raked in lots of money for his own self. But they were so invested in their models, and they were so invested in the long-term politics of this. The longer this goes, the richer they get. They don't want it to end. And to say that it's settled silence, that is basically a subsidy for a certain group of rent-seeking um, uh, people who are looking for uh, to profit off of, of, of government action. God, these conservatives are wonderful with their projection. They're so obvious, right? So their scientists take money, so they assume all the other scientists are in it for the money. So there's a, a conspiracy that involves 97% of climate scientists in the world. Now, what's their conclusion? Their conclusion is the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change has reported with, quote, high confidence that without cutting greenhouse gas emissions, the world risks, quote, severe, pervasive, and irreversible impacts for people and ecosystems. So they are united in shouting in unison, look at the numbers, it's obvious what's happening and soon it's going to be irreversible. We've got to change direction. But no, the Republicans say they're all bought off, but we have the pure scientists, the tiny percentage who agree with us. And one of them is esteemed Willie Soon. And he works for the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. So he must be telling the truth. Interesting. Now... Let's go to a report from Think Progress on this. Willie Soon's papers have cast doubt on how hot the last century really was. Whether polar bears are negatively impacted by a warming Arctic, 
Maybe they like to get a tan. And Okay, I added that last part. And concluded the sun plays a larger role in climate change than greenhouse gas emissions. So these are all the different things that he has said. In fact, he says... He has said that the mainstream climate scientists and those concerned by the causes and impacts of human-caused climate change are, quote, out of their minds. All the other scientists are out of their minds. He's the one that's right. Okay. Now, I wonder if he was influenced by money. Well, let's take a quick look at the list of people who have funded his research. Oh, will you look at that? $409,000 from Southern Company, a gigantic fossil fuel company. Hmm... $274,000 from the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, that would be uh, the main lobby for the oil and gas industry. $335,000 from ExxonMobil. I think I know who they are. $230,000 from Charles G. Uh, Koch Foundation. And if you're confused about that, the Koch brothers actually make uh, a ton of money from oil refining. Interesting. And then finally, $324,000 from anonymous donations via Donors Trust, which is actually a front group for many of these same groups. Okay, so they put the money in, and what do they want? They want results. Okay, now, he says, no, I am a, he says, I am a very principled man. I'm sure you are, right? Uh, and he says, well, i got to get paid somehow, and I don't take money from the government, so I'm going to take money from these guys. If you're inclined to believe him, you might think that's a good enough excuse. Well, let's look further into this story and see what happens. In many cases, he referred to scientific papers or congressional testimony as deliverables in correspondence with his funders. So he's going to, for example, a Southern Company, and he's saying, here's the deliverable you asked for. You gave me something, and, I, and in exchange, I'm giving you something back. You gave me $409,000. Now, here's a report saying, don't worry, your industry is totally fine and is not causing climate change. Oh, interesting. All right. Let's keep going. Southern Company's agreement was soon, and Harvard Smithsonian gave the coal utility the ability to, to review the scientific papers and suggest changes before they were published. Ah, that's it. Done. <laughs> what legitimate scientist says, oh, you fund my research, and then I'll hand it over to you, and you can edit it any way you like? Well, then that's not scientific research. That's some guy who paid you to do propaganda, and you're letting him edit your work. Okay. Now, meanwhile, of course, the lobbyists love this guy. So the American Petroleum Institute, their uh, spokesperson comes out and says, no, no, no. They say, you have a guy that is aligned and associated with Harvard University, one of the top universities in the United States, and the Smithsonian. Also very reputable. See, that's the whole point. All they got to do is they got to get one scientist into a halfway reputable place, and this place sounds reputable. By the way, Harvard says, wait, 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 we're not paying this guy. This is a different center. Soon doesn't work for us. We don't pay him a salary. We didn't approve any of this. Now, the actual center itself, they got some explaining to do, right? And right now they're in the middle of panic and saying, okay, we're going to look into it. We're going to look into it. That looks pretty bad. We're going to look into it, right? But this guy's not getting paid by Harvard, but that's the whole point. You put one guy in there. The Koch brothers, we've told you in previous stories, they pay for professors at different universities throughout the country. They establish a, a fund for those specific professors, and they say, you can only hire the professors we like, and they have approval over that. So then they turn around and go, look at this esteemed professor who agrees climate change is nonsense. I'm going to keep doing my oil refineries. Fascinating. And then finally... If you weren't convinced of how unethical uh, these actions are yet, I'll give you one last one. Uh, over the last decade, 
soon failed to disclose this funding in at least 11 of his scientific papers, likely violating guidelines in eight of those cases. You can't write a so-called scientific paper telling us how uh, climate change is not caused by man and might not even exist, and it's awesome for polar bears, and not tell us the guys who funded that was ExxonMobil and the American Petroleum Institute. It is obviously and massively unethical. I showed you all those clips from conservatives before, because that's what they do, man. They assume that you're up to the same tricks they are. They're like, we pay off our scientists to pretend to be on our side. We give them cold, hard cash, and they give us the deliverables of bullshit science. So we assume that everybody else does the same thing. No, they don't. The other scientists are just scientists. They measure things. They do data. They do analysis. And they come up with facts, unlike the guys you bought off. I was just guessing. Washington Post is afraid that Republican Senator Jim Inhofe's latest absurd claims about climate change are going to be a national embarrassment. Inhofe, who chairs the Environment and Public Works Committee, took to the Senate floor recently to try to debunk what he called the hysteria on global warming by holding a snowball. The Post's March 1st editorial noted accurately that, quote, the fact that it's cold at one place on the earth at one point in time does not undermine the contention that industrial greenhouse gas emissions are warming the planet over the course of decades, close quote. And it added, quote, politicians worthy of Americans' trust dispel this sort of ascientific thinking. They don't encourage it, close quote. So what does it say of the Washington Post's worthiness of Americans' trust that one of its most prominent columnists engages in just this sort of ascientific thinking? Veteran Post columnist George Will has repeatedly used things like snow at the North Pole to cast doubt on climate science. In January, he presented evidence of episodes of climate change not produced by human activity as a reason to dismiss what he called climate Cassandra's concerns about disruptions that are created by people. Charles Krauthammer has also used his prestigious soapbox at the Post to attack climate scientists as white-coated propagandists, peddling what he's called superstition. And who can forget the time the paper made room on the op-ed page for Sarah Palin to offer her rejection of scientific consensus? Post-editorial page editor Fred Hyatt has justified printing climate change know-nothingism by saying, quote, I'm more inclined to take op-eds that challenge our editorials than just kind of join the chorus, close quote. Even if that were a universally applied principle, it's a strange way to explain giving a prominent airing to ideas that, when professed by Inhofe, the paper has no trouble dismissing as dangerous nonsense. 
NBC's Meet the Press had a different reaction to the influential environmental policymakers' evident cluelessness about environmental destruction. As noted by the L.A. Times' Michael Hiltzik, host Chuck Todd introduced a clip of Senator Inhofe's snowball bit by saying, quote, A little lighter note here. Senator Jim Inhofe used a fun little prop to make his point apparently on global warming, claiming it was a hoax this week. Here he is, close quote. After the clip, Todd added, quote, Now I'm not going to use that to get into a climate change debate. I'm actually going to use it because I think the House and Senate floor sometimes get some fun moments, close quote. Hiltzik notes that the show aired just a few days after a new study published in the journal Nature that reported a rise in the sea level outside New York City by a magnitude unprecedented during the entire history of the tide gauge records. And finally, still speaking of the laugh riot that is climate change, have you heard the one about the pipeline that would carry a third more tar sands crude oil than Keystone XL? If you don't live in Wisconsin, the odds are no. But Line 61, which runs the length of the state and would convey up to 1.2 million barrels every day, is almost a done deal, with virtually no press scrutiny. Line 61 is a project of oil company Enbridge, which happens to have the worst record for oil spills in the Western Hemisphere, some 800 incidents since 1999, including the largest inland spill in U.S. history, a 2010 line rupture that dumped 20,000 barrels into the Kalamazoo River. A story by Lewis Weisberg in the Wisconsin Gazette notes that Enbridge snuck the project under the radar by breaking it into pieces, each of which was approved without an environmental impact study and largely without public meetings. What makes it worse that you likely haven't heard the story is that many journalists must know about it. A single op-ed by writer and musician Dan Kaufman ran in the January 17th New York Times, which we understand many reporters read, but has triggered no other major media attention. As Weisberg notes, on the myriad occasions on which Enbridge has spilled crude into communities and waterways, the settlements to residents come with gag orders. So, quote, there's no one around except for activists to tell the public the truth, close quote. Reporters could do that, too, but first they'd have to pay attention, seriously. Best of Left is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront focuses majorly on index funds, a low-cost way to diversify your investment, while their software manages your money using strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. By simply avoiding trading fees and commissions altogether and paying only an extremely low service fee, you save money without even trying and then let your investment grow with this time-tested method. 
good. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash left and they'll manage your first $10,000 for absolutely free. That's Wealthfront.com slash left. And now the fine print, Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risk and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. When the Portuguese arrived in Latin America about 500 years ago, they obviously found this amazing tropical forest. And among all this biodiversity that they have never seen before, they found one species that called the attention very quickly. The species, when you cut the, the bark, you'll find a very dark red resin that was very good to paint and uh, dye fabric to make clothes. The indigenous people called this species Pau Brasil, and that's the reason why this land became land of Brazil and later on Brazil. That's the only country in the world that has a name of a tree. So you can imagine that it's very cool to be a forester in Brazil, <laughs> among other reasons. You know, forest products are all around us. Apart from all those products, forest is very important for climate regulation. In Brazil, almost 70% of the evaporation that makes rain actually comes from the forest. Just the Amazon bombs to the atmosphere 20 billion tons of water every day. This is more than what the Amazon rivers, which is the largest river in the world, puts in the sea per day, which is 17 billion tons. If we have to boil water to get the same effect in evapotranspiration, we would need six months of the entire power generation capacity of the world. So it's a hell of a service for all of us. We have in the world about four billion hectares of forests. This is more or less uh, China, US, Canada, and Brazil all together in terms of size, to have an idea. Three quarters of that are in the temperate zone, and just one quarter is on the tropics. But this one quarter, one billion hectares, holds most of the biodiversity and very important, 50% of the living biomass, the carbon. Now, we used to have like 6 billion hectares of forest, 50% more than what we have 2,000 years ago. We actually lose 2 billion hectares in the last 2,000 years, but in the last 100 years, we lose half of that. That was when we shift from deforestation of temperate forests to deforestation of tropical forests. So think of this, in 100 years, we lose the same amount of forests in, in the tropics that we lose in 2,000 years in temperate forests. That's the speed of the destruction that we are having. Now, Brazil is an important piece of this puzzle. We have the second largest forest in the world just after Russia. It makes 12% of the, all the world's forests are in Brazil. Most of that in the Amazon. It's the large piece of forest we have. It's a very big, large area. You can see that you could fit many of the European countries there. We still have 80% of the forest cover. That's the good news. 
But we lost 15% in just 30 years. So if we go in this speed, very soon we will lose this powerful pump that we have in the Amazon that regulates our climate. Deforestation was growing fast and accelerating in the end of the 90s and beginning of 2000. Twenty-seven thousand square kilometers in one year. This is 2.7 million hectares. It's almost like half a half of Costa Rica every year. So at this moment, this is 2003-2004. I've come to uh, having to be coming to work in, in the government, and together with another teammates on the National Forest Department, we were assigned a task to join the team and find out the causes of deforestation and make a plan to combat that at national level involving the local governments, the civil society, the business, local communities, on an effort that could tackle those causes. So we come up with this um, plan with 144 actions in different areas. Uh, now I will go to all of them, one by one. No, um, Just giving some examples of what ha we have been done in, in, in the next years. So the first thing... Uh, we set up a system with the National Spatial Agency that could actually see where deforestation is happening almost in real time. So we now in Brazil we have this system, DETER, where every month or every two months we got information where deforestation is happening. So we can actually act when it's happening. And all the information is full transparent so others can replicate that in independent systems. This allows us, between other things, to apprehend 1.4 million cubic meters of logs that were illegally taken. Part of that we uh, sold and sell, and all the revenue become a fund that, are, that now funds conservation projects of local communities as an endowment fund. This also allows us to make a big operations uh, to seize corruption and illegal activities that end up on having 700 people in prison, including a lot of public servants. Then we make the connection that areas that have been working on illegal deforestation should not receive any type of credit or finance. So we cut this through the bank system. And then link this to the end users, so supermarkets, the slaughterhouses, and so on, that buy products from illegal clear-cut areas, they also can be liable for the, the deforestation. So making all these connections to help to push the problem down. And also, we work a lot on land tenure issues. It's very important for conflicts. Uh, 50 million hectares of protected areas were uh, created, which is an area the size of um, probably something like the size of Spain. Um, and from those, 8 million were indigenous, indigenous lands. Now, we start to see uh, results. So in the last 10 years, deforestation come down in Brazil 75%. This is... So if we compare with the average deforestation that we have on the last decade, uh, we save 8.7 million hectares, which is the size of Austria. But more important, it avoids the emission of 3 billion tons of CO2 in the atmosphere. This is uh, by far the largest contribution to reduce greenhouse gas emissions until today as a positive action. Uh, one may think that when you do this type of actions to decrease, um, to push down deforestation, you will have an economic impact. 
than because you're not having economic activities or something like that. But it's interesting to know that it's quite the opposite. In fact, on the period that we have the deepest decline on deforestation, the economy grow in average double that on the previous decade when deforestation was actually going up. So it's a good lesson for us. Maybe this is completely disconnected, and we just learn by having deforestation come down. Now, these are all good news, um, and we sh it's quite an achievement, and we obviously should be very proud about that. Um, but it's not even close to sufficient. In fact, if you think about the deforestation in the Amazon in 2013, that was over half a million hectares. It means that every minute, to an area the size of two soccer fields has been cut in the Amazon last year, just last year. If we sum up the deforestation that we have in the other biomas in Brazil, we are talking about still the largest deforestation rate in the world. It's more or less like we are like forest heroes, but it's still deforestation champions. So we can't be satisfied, not even close to satisfied. So the next step, I think, is to fight to have zero loss of forest cover in Brazil and to have that as a goal for 2020. That's our next step. Now, I've always been interested on the relationship of climate change and forests. First, because 15% of greenhouse gas emissions come from deforestation, so it's a big part of the problem. But also, forests can be a big part of the solution, since that's the best way we know to sink, capture, and store carbon. Now, there is another relationship of climate and forest that really struck me in 2008 and make me change my career from forest to be working with climate change. I went to visit Canada and British Columbia uh, together with um, uh, the chiefs of the forest services of other countries that we have a kind of alliance of, of them, like Canada, Russia, India, China, US. And while we were there, we, we learned about this uh, pine beetle that is literally eating the forests in Canada. What we see here, uh, those um, brown uh, trees, these are really dead trees. They're standing dead trees because of this, uh, the larva of this beetle. What happens is that th this beetle is controlled by the cold weather in the winter. But for many years now, they don't have the sufficient cold weather to actually control the population of this beetle, and it became and uh, uh, a, a disease that is really killing billions of trees. So I came back with this notion that forest is actually one of the earliest and most um, affected victims of climate change. So I was thinking, if, if, if I succeed and working with all my colleagues to actually help to stop deforestation, maybe we will lose the battle later on for climate change by floods, heat, fires, and so on. So I decided to leave the Forest Service and, and start to work directly on, on climate change. Find a way to think, understand the challenge and, and go for them. Now, so the challenge of climate change is pretty straightforward. The goal is very clear. We want to limit the increase of the average temperature in the planet in two degrees. There are several reasons for that. I'm not get into that now. But in order to get to this limit of two degrees, which was possible for us to survive, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
the fact that we have a budget of emissions of 1,000 billion tons of CO2 from now to the end of the century. So if we divide this by the number of years, what we have is an average budget of 11 billion tons of CO2 per year. Now, what is one ton of CO2? It's, it's more or less what one small car running 20 kilometers a, uh, a day will emit in one year. Or it's one flight one way from Sao Paulo to Johannesburg or to London. One way. Two ways, two tons. So 11 billion tons is twice that. Now, the emissions today are 50 billion tons. And it's growing. It's growing and maybe will be on 61 by 2020. Now, we, ha we need to go down to 10 by 2050. And while this happens, the population will grow from 7 to 9 billion people. The economy will grow from $60 trillion in 2010 to $200 trillion. And so what we need to do is to be much more efficient in a way that we can go from 7 tons of carbon per capita, per person, per year, into something like 1. You have to choose. Or you take the, the airplane or you have a car. So the question is, can we make it? And that's exactly the same question I got when I was um, developing the plan to combat deforestation. It's got so big problem, so complex, can we really do it? So I think so. Think of this. The deforestation means 60% of the greenhouse gas emissions in Brazil in the last decade. Now it's a little bit less than 30%. In the world, it's 60% is energy. So if we can tackle directly the energy the same way we could tackle deforestation, maybe we can have a chance. So there are five things that I think we should, we should do. First, we need to disconnect development from carbon emissions. We don't need to clear cut the forest, all the forests, to actually get more jobs on agriculture and have more economy. That's what we prove when we decrease deforestation, the economy continues to grow. Same things could happen when in, the, in the energy sector. Second, we have to move the incentives to the right place. Today, $500 billion a year goes into subsidies to fossil fuels. Why don't we put a price on carbon and transfer this to the renewable energy? Third, we need to measure and make it transparent where, when, and who is emitting greenhouse gases. So we can have actions specific to each one of those opportunities. Fourth, we need to leapfrog the roots of development, which means you don't need to go to a landline telephone before you get to the, to the mobile phones. Same way we don't need to go to fossil fuels, to the one billion people that don't have access to energy before we get to the clean energy. And fifth and last, we need to share responsibilities between governments, business, and civil society. There are work to do for everybody, and we need to have everybody on board. So to finalize, I think, um, you know, future is not like a fate that you have to just to go as business as usual goes. We need to have the courage to actually change the route, testing something new. Think that we can actually change the route. I think we are doing this uh, with deforestation in Brazil, and I hope we can do it also with climate change in the world. Thank you.
Remember the mayor of Amity Island in the movie Jaws? He was played by Mary Hamilton in a gathering panic. The only thing louder than his resort wear was his opposition to using incendiary language like shark and eaten alive. Scares away the tourists. It's going to be one of the best summers we've ever had. Now, if you fellas are concerned about the beaches, you do whatever you have to to make them safe. But those beaches will be open for this weekend. The great white man-eater to the mayor of Amity Island was what you'd call an inconvenient truth. The most famous inconvenient truth, of course, is global warming. Although here again, you'd never get an official of the state of Florida to say so. As described in a report by the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection is prohibited by Governor Rick Scott's administration from using the terms climate change and global warming in any official capacity. Instead, environmental officials are reduced to using euphemisms such as nuisance flooding. Tristram Corton is a journalist for the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. He spearheaded the investigation. Tristram, welcome to On the Media. Thank you very much. Give me a, a, a brief overview of the effects so far of global climate change on the state of Florida. As Rick Scott said, I'm not a scientist, but um, we're facing a lot of, obviously, sea level rise. Uh, this is leading to the threat of saltwater incursion into our freshwater supply. A lot of our native flora and fauna, especially marine-based, face devastating effects like coral reefs. I'm told it is the number one threat to them, and they're already endangered. Florida is looking at having to outlay a fair amount of money to protect its infrastructure, roads, seawalls, property. They're going to have to come up with plans to help protect all of this. To protect the citizens, but also to protect what is probably the biggest industry in the state of Florida, which is? Tourism. Aha, tourism. Just like Amity Island. Is it as simple as that, that the state that so depends on tourism and, and the real estate industry just doesn't want to frighten away outsiders with scary terms like climate change? So the governor's office gave us a few-word response. There is no policy. And the Department of Environmental Protection gave the exact same wording. There is no policy. And by which they probably are technically accurate. There's no written policy. You know, what we discovered was all communicated verbally. So what did you discover? You do have people telling you what they were told not to tell you. A local conservationist who writes a column in the monthly Biscayne Times newspaper, approached us and said, listen, this has happened to me twice that I've been told by the DEP not to use these terms. And the first time was when he was contracted by the DEP to write a series of educational fact sheets about coral reefs and the threats they faced. He and his partner wanted to use um, climate change, and it was taken out of their report, and they were told not to use it. And then he volunteered to take a slideshow, essentially, to community groups about threats facing coral reefs. And in this case, they sent him an email saying, you can't use it. If you do use it, Got to make clear it's not coming from the state. So then I just started calling ex-employees. A uh, former attorney in the, in the office of the general counsel for the Department of Environmental Protection said, absolutely. I was told at a staff meeting by my supervisor not to use these terms. Shortly after Rick Scott was elected and shortly after he appointed uh, Herschel Vineyard as the director of the DEP, one ex-employee said that this was known as a department-wide policy and it interfered with reports that this person was writing about uh, the economic impacts and how to uh, address them, and yet she couldn't use the term. 
Now, this strikes me as a kind of Orwellian approach to language, and it could have a couple of explanations. One is the JAWS scenario, where the Scott administration just doesn't want to scare away tourism and, and investors in Florida real estate. And the other is a pure political matter. Most of the Republican Party, of which Scott is a member, refuses to embrace that global climate change is significantly man-made. And to use terms like global warming could be seen as betraying one of the major planks of the party platform. Is that what's going on here? I don't think the two potential drivers of this that you described are exclusive. I think that there's a lot of fear about the impact global warming will have on industry and tourism and real estate in this, in this state. It may very well be they don't want to send people into a panic and that damping down these terms in official communications is, uh, is going to help accomplish that. Now, euphemistic language is one thing. Policy is another. Did you discover any evidence that the degrees to which the state strains not to uh, speak the obvious aloud also causes them to pull their punches in environmental protection itself? That is the $60,000 question. Now, in this story, we, just, we really had to spend all our effort trying to verify, essentially, these semantics. We're going to have to take a look at whether or not this, essentially, attitude has impacted the policies that are going to get us prepared to deal with these changes. It seems logical to assume that even if you're working on this stuff, the fact that you can't use these other terms makes you that much less effective, right? So you could be that much better if you were able to just state straightforwardly what is accepted science. Tristram, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. Tristram Corton is a journalist for the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. If you're going to lead my country If you're going to say it's free gonna need a little honesty just a few honest words it shouldn't be that hard just a few honest words is all I need Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz, a prominent climate science denier who is now running for president in 2016, in an interview with the Texas Tribune, he compared himself to Galileo. Today, the global warming alarmists are the equivalent of the flat earthers. You know, it used to be, it is accepted scientific wisdom, the earth is flat, and this heretic named Galileo was branded a denier. Okay, so first, it was not scientific wisdom, it was church doctrine. Galileo didn't deny science, he denied church doctrine. So Cruz has this all backwards. Straight out of the denier playbook, it's called the Galileo Gambit. But you know, he is getting a lot of attention for his blatant science denial this week. And yes, thanks to you, and, giving it to him. <laughs> well, I think he's probably also getting a lot of campaign donations from all the people who are fooled by 
the science denial industry. And now in Florida, Florida's Republican Governor Rick Scott is still insisting that there is no official ban against state employees saying the words climate change or global warming. Yet in the state <laughs> legislature, Florida's Director of Emergency Management, Brian Kuhn, really tried hard to do just that. Brian Kuhn, director of Florida FEMA, is speaking to a legislator in the Florida State Senate, and he's tying himself into knots trying to not say climate change. Are you familiar with the new uh, procedures that FEMA issued just this week dealing with uh, climate change? My understanding is at this point is it will require that future versions of our mitigation plan will be required to have uh, language discussing that issue. What issue is that? Uh, the issue that you mentioned earlier regarding. Uh, <laughs> and everyone, all of the legislators, just start cracking up at this guy who won't say the word climate change. Just a few days ago, we covered a story in which a Florida official did say climate change. And what happened to him? He was suspended and ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Unbelievable what is going on down in Florida right now. It looks like climate change could be a thing in the 2016 presidential elections after being ignored in the 2012 presidential election. For now, the mainstream media are holding feet to the fire. They seem to be reporting on Ted Cruz denialism and what's going on down in in Florida. So this is, let's call it a positive development. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. Finally, you may have heard, and if you're like many at first not believed, that the Florida Department of Environmental Protection has ordered officials not to use the terms climate change or global warming in reports or official communications. Florida is the place scientists identify as the most susceptible in the country to the effects of climate change. The unwritten policy went into effect after Governor Rick Scott, who doesn't believe in climate science, took office in 2011, and it's affected reports, educational efforts, and public policy, according to information obtained by the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. At one point, claims one source, department employees were instructed by a regional administrator not to use even the term sea level rise. The phenomenon was to be called nuisance flooding. Well, it sounds silly, of course, banning words as though that would erase a real-world phenomenon. There's no such ban for network TV reporters. They can use the terms. They just don't. 
A fair study conducted by Miles Grant looked at the three broadcast networks' coverage of unusual cold and snow in the east from the end of January to the beginning of March and found out that of more than 400 segments, just seven touched on climate change, whose redirection of the jet stream was responsible for the severe weather. Meanwhile, there were only a dozen stories on the western United States' record-breaking warm winter, and only one of those brought up climate change. All in all, the networks used the words climate change in just 13 stories during the study period. And four of those were about Senator Inhofe and his snowball. Tell me that you'll open your eyes. 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 Get up, get out, get away from these liars. Cause they don't get your soul or your fire. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, supporting cap and dividend for a healthy climate. The Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the regional climate change NGO where I personally used to work before moving to this show full-time, is backing legislation that complements the usual activism we always tell you about. It is a really neat idea that people should be excited to get behind and draw attention to. And bonus, it's easy to describe and explain to even non-political folks in your networks. Congressman Chris Van Hollen of Maryland has introduced the Healthy Climate and Family Security Act of 2015, or H.R. 1027, for those who like to get technical and wonky. It creates what CCAN calls, quote, a simple, fair, and built-to-last policy solution to reduce the carbon and other heat-trapping emissions now harming our climate while boosting the income of most American families, unquote. By requiring polluters to pay for bringing oil, gas, and coal into the U.S. market, companies are de-incentivized from exploiting dirty energy and revenue is generated, which is then paid out to everyone with a valid Social Security number in America. Think of it the way Alaska pays out oil-sharing revenue to its residents by charging charging the companies a fee, and then distributing the resulting funds to the citizens. Plus, I like it better than a standard carbon tax because everyday people get to see the direct benefits of taxing fossil fuel companies when they get that check in the mail. This will make it incredibly popular and therefore nearly impossible to repeal the way Australia repealed their carbon tax recently after a conservative government was elected. Think of it like Social Security in that way. Everyone benefits, so it enjoys enormous support. Visit climateandprosperity.org where you can sign the petition supporting Rep. Van Hollen's plan to boost the economy while preserving the climate and call on your representatives to co-sponsor the bill. Co-sponsors build allyships and pull other representatives into the fight during the current legislative session and beyond. So that's an important emphasis with a GOP-led Congress. You can also volunteer to get your group or organization involved by signing on as part of the coalition supporting the bill. Current endorsers vary from local to national, environmental and consumer, and social and economic justice-focused 
interest groups. Corporations clearly don't respect anything unless it costs money. So it's time they respected climate impact by having to consider the price tag while making decisions on energy use. Changing the way businesses approach consumption while reducing CO2 by 80% over the next 35 years and raising money for those who need it most will be a win-win all the way around. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If making corporations pay for polluting is a cause that you can get behind, don't forget to hit the share buttons to spread the word about cap and dividend via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Growth. It's the cornerstone of our society. We must continue to grow. The Dow Jones must continue to go up. Your bank account must keep growing. Your house should keep getting bigger. Your fingernails, your boobs, your Jenga towers all need to keep getting bigger. Growth is everything, right? We learned that in third grade when the bigger kid holds you down and jams crayons into your mouth while the other kids laugh and laugh and laugh. Billy Brand, I will find you one day. I will hunt you down at whatever redneck gas station you restock beef jerky at. Nothing's anything wrong with a minimum wage job. I mean, they're, they're very hardworking people out there just trying to feed their families. But I doubt you're one of them, Billy Brand, with your tap-out t-shirt and your limp biscuit tattoo. I will find you one day, and I will tell you how much I'm over it. Every day we're taught growth is good, but growth is also bad. Cancers grow, parasites grow, poisonous algae blooms grow, illegal NSA surveillance infrastructure grows, the popularity of bubble tea grows. I don't get it. I don't get the bubble tea thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If that means I'm unevolved and therefore have to stay on Earth when the spaceship of valuable humans takes off to keep the species alive, so be it. I don't want the f***ing tea. <laughs> Yet we are told to never question the infinite growth of our society, even though infinite growth is impossible. And that's not coming from just our greatest thinkers, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Ellen DeGeneres, Jennifer Love Hewitt. It's also coming from physics. I'm not sure you've heard of physics. He has a podcast on Kevin Smith's network. But physics says we can't grow forever. The planet cannot sustain such a thing and will collapse under the pressure. And that could start happening as soon as the 1990s. So we need to get our act together before the 1990s so that we'll still have a nice healthy planet and can devote our energy to fighting other monsters of the 90s, like Limp Bizkit. <laughs> Limp Bizkit is a band named after a muffin with erectile dysfunction. <laughs> Yet we keep fighting for economic growth above all else. We put profit above the survival of the race like a sociopath. There is little financial incentive to clean up a river or avoid polluting the air. And in fact, when we subsidize such a thing, often trade deals won't allow it. The World Trade Organization puts a stop to it, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, pushed by both Obama and the GOP, will increase that insanity. Look, 
Climate change is happening. 2014 was the hottest year on record globally. And I don't just mean because of these playful Bermuda shorts by J. Crew. They are hot, hot, hot. If you'd like to grab a pair of those shorts, kill yourself. Okay? They're, they're ugly, and I'm trying to talk about us eating ourselves alive, and you're thinking about shorts? That's like being in an open casket funeral and going, does anyone know where she got her eyeshadow? All right? I'd ask her, but I don't think now's the time. So the planet is heating up, and we've killed 50% of the world's wildlife over the past 40 years. But we're told we need to keep growing. And even though I don't eat meat, I still want wildlife because I'm a fan of the panda cam. Mm. Look at those little guys, all right? Another example of growth being bad. I love a baby pandas, but once they're over three or four, I say turn them into jet fuel. Don't care, don't care. I mean, I mean, they just sit there like the notorious B.I.G. of the animal kingdom. Come on, you could put a gold chain on an adult panda, no one would bat an eye. No one. Anyway, point is, we only measure our society in growth, but it will kill us. And you will never see a discussion of this on the mainstream media. MSNBC had a panel on whether Beyonce should comb her daughter's hair. Yet they can't talk about whether we should measure our society in, oh, I don't know, the cleanliness of our water, the health of our forests, the level of charity done for others, the happiness of our people like the country of Bhutan does, or anything other than just psychology growth all I'm saying is let's stop acting like children and start asking the big questions can we do that please before the planet gets hotter than this cashmere cardigan from J. Crew? Jay, it's Wade. You know, I was uh, listening to the last show, and I was thinking about, like, a kind of an easy way to, like, get the police out of the poor communities and to tax the rich without officially taxing the rich. So, like, let's say you had a, a speeding ticket cost $250, right? Well, say a simple way to do that would be to say if, if you go down to the downtown courthouse and pay the ticket in person, it costs $1, right? That's it. But you mail in your speeding ticket fine, costs $250. Now, some may say, well, how is that? That's disproportional punishment. You're punishing those that can afford it. Not really. Uh, who, who willingly goes to the downtown courthouse? You know, you can never find a place to park. The courthouse itself sucks, it's confusing, it's crowded, it takes all day standing in line. Nobody willingly goes there. It's a that's a punishment in itself. Right? You gotta take a day off work. So that's a punishment. But if you can't afford two hundred and fifty dollars, at least you can you know, you can afford the one dollar to at least get your name off of the warrant list, not get arrested, and therefore the rich people or people not even rich, but people that can afford the, the, the money will just mail it in and avoid all that hassle, right? Where do you think the cops are going to shift their focus to? I mean, it's, it's not hard to figure out, you know? But I also think that the, the tickets in general are getting a little bit out of hand. Speeding tickets are one thing, but let's talk about, like, uh, uh, 
when you don't have your inspection on your car, and and they they pull you over and they and they write you a ticket for that. Well, th- think about how many people in America, let's say like a single mom, you know, her inspections out on her car, not just because the inspection itself costs you know fifty dollars, but maybe the car won't pass inspection, right? Maybe it's a it's it's not a very good car. She she can't afford the the mechanic bill to to get the car to pass inspection. She certainly can't afford a brand new car. So she just does the best thing that she can. She's got to go to work. She's got to pick her kids up. Got to go to the grocery store. So you just drive around. Hope you don't get caught. I mean, is, is giving her a hundred, two hundred dollar ticket really going to help her get her car fixed? It, uh, that's probably the last thing she needs to go. Oh, great! You know, now I'm I'm one step closer away from you know, <laughs> just knocking her down a peg or two for what? I mean, there's got to be some some balance here. I don't think anybody in their right mind saying. That, that breaking the law shouldn't have some consequences, but why the hell does it always have to be a monetary consequence? Well, $250 is a lot of money to a person that makes $8 an hour. That's after taxes. That's damn near their whole check. It, it strikes me as, as a system of if you, God forbid, you get caught in that, you could literally never get out of it or take a long, long time. And uh, I do agree with what a lot of the show was saying, well, that it is kind of a debtor's prison. And it, it, it doesn't seem to be very productive to me. It's almost like people, our elected officials in these small towns actually want people to break the law. And there's so many laws on the books, both traffic and pedestrian laws, that you, you could be breaking the law and not even know it. It's almost like they're, they're giving cops as many tools as possible to find somebody, as many tools as possible to have an official interaction with somebody. I don't think that's um, that's really really fair. And I also do think that, that I believe it was the uh, the Young Turks that were talking about. You know, if everything's against the law, how free are you? And I mean, that was a that was that was thought provoking. And it, it, it's it's true though. So many laws. How free are we really? To, you know, it just. Seems a little bit out of whack to me. Anyway, I thought the show was really, really well done, and, and you know, a lot of great clips there, a lot of real thought provoking. Uh, I think for everybody, so I really do appreciate it. Have a good one. Hello, best of the left. This is Dan Platt from Occupy Albany, New York. I'm often annoyed when words like liberal and left are used inter- interchangeably. I understand they do not mean the same thing. Left could be prioritizing the common good by promoting vaccine requirements and liberal, meaning individual rights and consumer choice. One can hold both of these values, of course, likely we all do, but they are different and that matters when one goes too far in one direction. The left can go authoritarian, the liberal can put consumer choice ahead of the commons. In all intermovement conflicts, uh, they can all be seen as fights over what words mean or what a label means. Bill Warren and Affleck over who's liberal, ISIS and other Muslims over Islam, and the Dems in my city who fight over who's progressive, as so many others do. So how do we move forward? Sam Cedar's point from the, your last episode about forcing others to entrench when my guess is we project our values onto them. This is not just a Fox News thing, I see it everywhere. So I think we can all benefit by perhaps 
when arguing or having a go with others that we wish to convince of something, that we should be asking them for their values and beliefs, or what kind of terms or labels they use, or as a philosopher would do, ask for their terms, of what they mean. This show itself is called Best of the Left, but I hardly ever, and don't or don't remember, anyone ever mentioning what is meant by the term left. Subjectively, it can mean something different to everyone, but that only makes it more important to show your respect for others by asking. There's also the problem of using terms like left and conversely right that imply that there are only that these are two ends of a line and that there are no other choices. This is perhaps the most damaging lie of our political discourse. So for that purpose, I would like people to call in and give their definition of left, liberal, or other, or another word. Because we all may speak English, but we also all speak different languages to each other. Asking for terms and values of others gives context and allows for the nuance that nuance that Jay always talks about. It shows your respect for them and that you don't want misunderstandings. It is something that Fox News never does, and knowing others' views is can be half the fight. Uh, it can tell you if you need to take a hardline approach and directly confront, or to slow down and be accommodated. Based on the context, all of these can bring people to some agreement. But also, people must be able to go in, as uh, men from Freakonomics put it, wanting to be convinced, in order to drop your bias and your own defenses, if only to learn from others as they argue with you, to find out what kind of monkey is on someone's back and know how to feed it to make them comfortable. I learned uh, this kind of thinking from a book called Leadership as, as Martial Arts, so check it out if you're interested. So this was a long point, but I hope it was helpful, as I'm always learning from you and all of you out there. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I'm going to endorse that you follow the directions laid out by Dan from Albany, New York, in the voicemail that we just heard but I have some caveats to go along with it. Now, that voicemail actually came in a few weeks ago, and I didn't play it because my my original thought process was having a debate over the definitions of liberal versus progressive versus left and so on sounds like one of the single most obnoxious things I could ever put on the show. Uh, but I've, I've rethought it because I'm going to just tweak it a little bit, even if only in my mind. The way Dan laid it out is actually pretty good. Uh, I'm not even changing much of what he said. I'm just changing the way I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it through the lens of my own personal experiences of the various times that I've had arguments with people over the definitions of these words. And it's some of the most wasted time I wish more desperately than anything else I could get back in my life. And I thought, well, okay, we don't want to do that. But by the letter of what Dan was saying, I think it's actually okay. So I encourage you to call in, give your thoughts on this, but use I statements. Don't call in and tell people what the definitions of words are. Call in and tell people your understanding of what the definitions of words are. For instance, 
when I became politically active and, and, you know, woke up to this whole world, I learned what the definition of liberal was and what the definition of progressive was and sort of the relationship between the two. And then, you know, within a couple of years or so, I got into a big argument with someone over what type of politically active person I should be. And we just virulently disagreed on the best way to, to move forward. And after, I don't know, a dozen email exchanges with, with this person, I discovered we actually completely agreed. We just had exactly inverted understandings of the definitions of liberal and progressives. So the way we felt was nearly identical. The way we defined and phrased how we felt was exactly opposite. Hence my uh, trepidation about having any sort of debate about these definitions. But I, I do think that, you know, between liberal and progressive and left and all of the other aspects uh, of Dan's call, I do think probably something worthwhile can come out of that. So if you have thoughts on definitions and just the, the whole, the, the broad spectrum of ideas that Dan brought up and you would like to chime in, I encourage you to do so in the way I just described. Uh, so again, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today, but another just quick reminder, The Best of the Left is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. They automatically rebalance your portfolio and reinvest your dividends all commission-free. It may boost your confidence to know that Wealthfront manages over $2 billion. So see for yourself by visiting wealthfront.com left, and you'll get your first $10,000 managed for free. So thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to those who support the show, especially by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing Stories and forget who it is with